Bible verse today is James 1, 1 through 8. Jesus, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count in all your joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave in the sea of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, it's a blessing uh, to be together. It's a blessing to be before your word. And uh, it's a blessing, God, to be convicted by your word. God, we pray that as we uh, open your scriptures now and as uh, we have even already heard them, God, that we would have uh, tender hearts, open hearts. God, that you would speak in such a way that transforms our hearts. Lord, we know you have the power to do that. And uh, we're dependent upon that each and every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Tomorrow morning is a Monday. Sorry to remind you if that's a sad thing to you. Tomorrow's a Monday morning, which means probably for many of you, you are going off to work or school or something of the like, and you've got uh, your regular task starting tomorrow. Today, hopefully for you, is a, a day off, a break, a chance to relax, a chance to catch your breath, and then tomorrow morning, you're right back at it, back to the thing that you do with the majority of your time. You're back on the job, you're swinging the hammer, you're typing at keys, you're standing at the front of a classroom, standing in a boardroom, you're in meetings, you're making widgets, you're driving on the road, you're doing whatever it is, dishes, laundry, school, homeschool, something. You've got something to do tomorrow. After your day off today, you're going to do something. So let me ask you, for your Monday morning to work, will you take your faith with you? Is your faith a Sunday-only faith, or is it a Monday through Sunday faith? Is your faith a great thing for Sunday morning, a great day, great thing to do on your, your day off, and a helpful way for you to relax, or do you take your faith with you to work? And I, I don't mean just that you share your faith with your coworkers, although that is absolutely a part of that, but I mean, do you have a faith that works? Do you have a faith that functions? Do you have a faith that impacts the way you live? Do your beliefs inform the way you live? Is your life transformed by what you know and what you believe about Jesus? Are your deeds transformed by your theology? That's the question I have for you, and that's the question I want to keep before you over the next handful of weeks as we walk through a little bitty book in the back of your Bibles called the book of James. Uh, I talked with a, a visitor who came uh, a couple weeks around Easter and I appreciate this. He said, you know, I want to make sure I came on a non-Easter Sunday so I could see what a regular Sunday uh, is like. And uh, he was, in, I, th I took this as a compliment. He said, you know, it looked pretty much the same Easter as the, you know, the week before and after. You know, that was pretty much the same. We, we do the same thing here every Sunday. We sing, we pray, we preach the Bible. Like, that's, that's what we do. Uh, it's who we are. We applaud God. There is one thing that is different, though, today that's been different from the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago for Easter, we preached John chapter 12. 
Last week, I preached Psalm 121. I enjoyed exalting Christ with you in both of those passages, but those were in different places of the Bible, right? Today, we're going to start in James 1, and Lord willing, if God doesn't return before, you know, noon or 11.30 today, uh, we'll make it through James 1, 8. And you know where we're going to preach next week, Lord willing, if Christ doesn't come back? We're going to start in verse 9. And we might make it to, you know, verse 18. And the next week, we're going to pick up in verse 19 of James chapter 1. You see what I'm doing there? We just are going to walk straight through the Bible. That is our commitment. It's not every Sunday. We take different things. going, But our commitment as a general practice is that we want to practice what we call consecutive expository preaching. So we just walk through books of the Bible, just taking the next verse and explaining it, exposing it to you. My job as a pastor is not to give you my opinions. That wouldn't do you any good. It'd be worthless to you. My job is to expose, to, to shed light on, to, to bring to light to you what's in the Bible. And then on top of that, we're, our goal, our, our, this Bible is a, a compilation of 66 books. And any book, the reason, the way it's composed, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's, it's written that way on purpose. And so our job as Christians is to take the Bible as it was given to us as a book, and to read it. Now, there's, again, different occasions, but the regular practice is to walk through a book of the Bible. So that is a little different than Easter Sunday. We had a different occasion for that. But I believe that's the regular, that, that is the regular practice of our church, and I believe that is for our good. And so today we start a new round of that, preaching through the book of James. And if you are familiar with this book, it might very well be your favorite. It, it is the favorite of many. If you're not familiar with the book of James, I encourage you to become familiar with it. It is only a short five chapters long. You could probably read it in about 12 to 15 minutes. If you just start to finish, go through it. It is uh, incredibly practical. It is straightforward. It is readable. Uh, probably most of it, if not all of it, you're pretty smart people, probably most of it, you'll understand it the very first time you read it. Now, putting it into practice is a little bit harder, but you at least understand it, and that's a head start uh, for us in the right direction. And if I could summarize the theme of James in just a couple words, I would say that James is about working faith, working faith. And by that, I mean it's a faith that impacts how you live. James's uh, description to us of the Christian life is not that we believe something on Sunday and act differently on Monday. James's description, and all the Bible's description, of, of what it means to be a Christian is that what we believe impacts what we do, how we act, how we live. Our faith is not broken. It is working. It goes to work. It takes action. It has feet, and it transforms how we live. When I read James, I, I feel like he tried to, to, to address dozens of practical things and somehow cram it all into squeeze it all into five short chapters. And so there is so much fruitful and beneficial to us as we try to unpack what it looks like for our faith to go to work. And that's what we're going to look at the next handful of weeks. The first idea that James really decided to tackle, you know, he, he waited till the second verse to, to tackle something really, you know, light and easy, which is trials. <laughs> not, not light and easy at all. He, he jumps right in to a, an incredibly challenging and difficult reality that we all face. Trials, struggles, hardships, all the things that we, we look at. He calls them trials of various kinds. So this is probably, he has in his mind, any number of things that are hard in our life. All kinds of trials, whether they be natural disasters or sicknesses or relational struggles or financial struggles, probably, uh, you know, for him, persecution in a major way, all those kinds of things. He's, he's grouping it all together. 
And he says something that is just hard to hear, honestly. Hard to hear. If you're not, if you're not you know, too just Christianized over, if you can hear this as, a, as a, the first time, if you can remember what it would be like to hear this first time, or if this is the first time, hopefully this lands on you as hard as it seems to me. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Like, really, James? <laughs> really, God, you want us to count... Joy? Wouldn't it to consider it a joy to be in a trial? Surely there's some kind of qualification or like, you know, backstep coming in the next verse, right? No, no he, doesn't, he doesn't back away from that. If, if he would have said to us, hey, I want to make sure, I want to encourage you, just survive the trial you're in. We just said, okay, I, I, that seems like good advice. Or maybe if he had said, stay strong in the trial. Yeah, yeah, okay, thank you, James, that's good advice. Cry out for help in trial. Yes, I, I, that's a good idea. But count it joy? Consider it a joy to be going through trials? How, how could he even have that? I mean, does he know the things we face? Does he know what you've been through? Does he know the loss you've had, the grief you've had, the struggle you've had? Does he understand? Does God understand what he is asking for you to do when he says, count it joy that you've gone through trials? That seems almost unstomachable. I made up that word. Is that a word? It seems hard to stomach. It seems hard to stomach that he would call us to have joy in the middle of trials. That's what I want to ask you this morning to be thinking about. And really this whole passage from 2 to 8 is all about going through trials. So to, to, try, to try to get our minds around joy in trials, I'm going to do something a little different. I want to go to the end and work our way back up. I'm going to start in verses 5 to 8, then jump back up to 3 and 4 before we come back to joy. And I think if we can do it that way, we may have a better grasp of what he's asking us to do. So in verse 5, we read this. Again, this is in the context of trials. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So the first call for us, and I think we can get our hands around this a little bit better than that call to joy, at least to begin with. The first call is this. With faith, ask God for wisdom in trials. With faith, faith, ask God for wisdom in trials. Okay, joy, that's a little hard for us to get our, our heads around. But we recognize, at least I hope you do, that when we face hard things, when we face difficulties, we need wisdom. It's hard to know how to just take the next step. It's hard to know which step to take when things are challenging. It's hard to know which step to take any day, but especially under trials, it can be hard to know the right path to be on. Wisdom, of course, is more than just knowledge, more than just information. Wisdom is about applying that knowledge, about that knowledge uh, impacting how we actually live. Wisdom is understanding, and it's understanding it's lived out in the right way. It's the practical use of knowledge. And in the Bible, the way the Bible talks about wisdom, it adds a very important dimension to that. The world may talk about wisdom, but when the Bible talks about wisdom, do you know where wisdom begins in the Bible? In fear of the Lord. We did a series in Proverbs last year. The wisdom, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, worship. Worship is wise in the Bible. And so is our holiness, our righteousness, our moral way of following God. One writer said the person who's wise is the person who knows and practices righteousness. So if we're following a holy path in the Bible, the Bible calls that a wise path. We want to be people when things are hard and when they're good, that we're following God in righteousness. That's wisdom. So that's what we want to be seeking after. One, uh, th this is a very counter cultural thing, of course. And one pastor and writer, Kent Hughes, said this, Man, 
through his vast accumulation of knowledge, has learned to travel faster than the speed of sound. But we display, or he, he displays his need of wisdom by going faster and faster and faster in the wrong direction. <laughs> he continues saying, man has amassed a huge amount of information about the world, but he shows an abysmal lack of wisdom by failing to live in it any better. We know a lot in the world, but are we wise? We have lots of information. You've got lots of facts. You've got lots of things that you've studied. You know lots of things, but are we wise? Are we holy? Are we pursuing God with the things that we know? When we come to a trial, when we come to a struggle, do we just throw information at it? Do we just throw data at it? Do we just try to figure out the most analytical way, or do we rely on God? In our trials, James tells us, come to God and ask for wisdom. That seems so simple. The thing we need, we can ask for, and yet so often we don't. He's talking here, of course, about prayer. When you face a hardship, who do you turn to first? Call somebody, text somebody, Google. Google probably knows the answer, right? But when we face a real hardship, when we need wisdom, do we look to the things of the created world, or do we look to the creator of the world? We should come to him asking for wisdom. Why do we ignore the creator when, we, uh, when he has what we need? The thing that may transform us and bring us to a place of prayer is we recognize how good He truly is. Did you hear that verse? It said, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives occasionally. Who gives when He feels like it. No, no, that's not what it says. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously with, to all without reproach. He is a generous Father. He is generous in his gifts. Matthew 7, 11, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God loves to bless his children. Do we ask for wisdom? God wants to provide for you. God wants to help you navigate all the ups and downs and trials and tribulations of the world. And if you come to him, he wants to answer that prayer. So do we come? The phrase that probably caught me, pierced my heart more deeply than any other in this, in this passage uh, this week was this little phrase that he says, He gives generally to all without reproach. Without reproach. That is that God is not disappointed. When we come to God in prayer, He doesn't fold His arms and say, How many times have I answered this for you, Philip? No, without reproach means He's not disappointed. He says, I am so glad you came. <laughs> I'm so glad that you came to me. You could have turned into anything else in the world, and yet you came to me. He loves being asked. If we see that generosity, if we see his goodness and his love, how could we not come? How could we not come to him asking for wisdom? This is an amazing picture of the gospel, isn't it? What did we do to earn God giving us an answer to prayer? Nothing. We did nothing to earn His favor. We did nothing to earn His love. We did nothing to earn His affection. And yet He is gracious upon, He has shown us grace upon grace and gracious beyond measure. If you ask, lack wisdom, ask God for it because He graciously wants to give it. This is the same God who we read about when we read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. John 3.16 or Romans 8.32 he who, did, he who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him for us all, will, how will He not also graciously give us all things? How, how can we not rely on Him? 
He has given us so much. With faith, ask God for wisdom in trials. Ask God for wisdom. When we come, we come as a person of faith. James gives a very vivid picture of what this looks like, to really, truly trust in Him. And he compares it uh, to being kind of out on the water. Verses 6 to 8, he says, But let him who is ask, ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We have, when we come to God, we come to Him knowing He is good, trusting He is who He says He is. That is faith. Faith is the, uh, the, 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 not, not just knowing in our minds, but knowing in our hearts how good He is. So when we come to Him in faith, our feet are firmly planted on that rock. But to doubt, to not trust Him, is like being out on the waves, being tossed up and down by the water. The water is pulled this way and that way by tides and wind and boats and all kinds of things that move the water around. It's unstable in all its ways, but faith is firmly planted. Now, I'll be honest that I struggle when I read verse 6 because I'm trying to understand what, is, what does this doubt look like? Because you read through the Bible and there's all kinds of people who don't always seem to have it always figured out. They're not, it's not like everybody who, who's God uses comes to faith and then they're rock solid for the rest of their life, right? I mean, look at Abraham, who is an incredible man of faith, and yet he doubted at one point and tried to go about pursuing God's promises his own way. Or take Gideon, who's an incredible man of faith, and yet he asked for, God, prove it to me one more time, prove it to me one more time, over and over again. And yet both of those guys make the, Hebrew, the faith hall of fame in Hebrews 11. So what does it mean to talk about doubting? He, say, he criticizes the person who is doubting. So what does it mean if it doesn't mean that we are always, for sure, have it always figured out? Well, verse 8 helps us understand what that doubt looks like. It says he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Literally, the word here is double-souled. You got, you got your heart going in two different directions. Your soul is divided. It is not united to Christ. It is not pursuing Christ only. It's pursuing other things. Some of you are reading uh, James for You by Sam Albury. And if you're not, I encourage you. It's a good resource as we study this. And he makes a similar comparison. He says this double-minded man is like somebody who comes to the edge of the dock and then puts one foot in the kayak and then hangs out there for a little bit. <laughs> and you know how that's going to go, right? You kind of wobbly, and then it slips a little further, a little further, a little further, until you're doing the splits and you just land in the water, all right? Or I heard somebody say it's like putting two feet on the back of two different horses. It's not going to last very long. not going to last very long. To be double-souled, to be double-minded, is to have your affections, your desire, the heart, the heart. Faith is always a heart thing, not just a mind thing. Your heart, your soul going in two different directions. you got two allegiances, and you're divided, and that's not going to work. You're two-faced. Not genuine. Genuine faith says, God, I need you. I trust in you to provide for me. Two-faced faith would say, God, I need you, but I'm also going to pursue this thing to solve my own problem. Jesus told us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, not half. With all your soul, not half. With all your strength. Our souls shouldn't be schizophrenics. One way on Sunday, a different way on Monday. We are one soul pursuing one God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all with reproach, without, without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's a promise you can cling to. I don't have that fully figured out, to be honest. I don't know what that always looks like. Wisdom, sometimes when we receive that wisdom, we might not even know we received it, but we trust God. I'm praying for you, praying for you to help me, God. I'm depending on you, and I'm taking this next step in faith, trusting that you're are going to guide every step that I take. Notice that he doesn't say, if you lack money, ask for it and he'll give it to you. If you lack 
uh, health, ask for it and he'll give it to you. No, he didn't ask for those things. He didn't promise that. He says, if you ask, lack wisdom. Remember here Solomon's prayer from the Old Testament. He comes before God. He didn't ask for money, didn't ask for conquering, didn't ask for royal armies. He didn't ask for gold, he didn't ask for kingdom. He asked for wisdom. And God ended up granting him all those things. Wisdom is fear of the Lord, is righteousness, is pursuing him in all things. And that's what God wants us to, to ask for and pursue and depend on him for. And as God helps you through each successive trial, you come through a trial, God gives you wisdom. You come to another trial, he gives you wisdom. You know what's going to happen? Your faith's going to grow. So let's step back up to verses 3 and 4 and see this progression. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So as we ask God for wisdom, now step up to those verses 3 and 4, and this is, what I think, God's truth for us today. In trials of faith, God grows our spiritual maturity. In trials of faith, God grows our spiritual maturity. Notice that progression. It's just kind of one step after another. There's trials, which is a test of faith, produces steadfastness, which then produces being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, which is a way of saying that you are spiritually mature. Every time we come to a challenge, which we can be honest is like every morning you wake up, right? Every time we come to a challenge, if we trust God through that challenge, you know what happens? Our faith grows. We become more mature. We become more like Christ. God is growing us. So maybe one day the challenge is only to this level and your faith meets it. God gives you the strength and the faith to meet it. And the next day the challenge is a little more, a little more, a little more. God wants you to grow. He wants your faith to grow. And the way He does that so often is through trials, through hardships, through struggles. It might be uncomfortable to think about it, but this is clear in Scripture. God tests you. God brings you through trials. God wants things to be hard on you sometimes because He knows that's how He's going to grow you. God has a purpose. God is at work. N.T. Wright said, Mechanics don't spend a lot of time testing scrap metal. They test car engines. Think that something's got a purpose, something's going to accomplish something. He said, You wouldn't be tested unless you were doing something serious. Those who follow Jesus the Messiah are not simply supposed to survive. They're supposed to count. They're supposed to make a difference in the world. You need to become strong to face the challenge. Compare, compare your exercise routine and the, the hardship that is with an Olympic athlete. Who's, who goes through more struggle in their exercise routine between you and an Olympic athlete? And who gets further in their physical fitness? God has a purpose when He pushes us, and it's for a reason. And when He pushes us, He never pushes us beyond what He can hold on to or what we can hold on to Him. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation. And that word temptation is the exact same word. It's the word for trial in James 1, 2. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But, he, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. That you may be able to endure it. As you go one through one test, you become much stronger so that you can be prepared for the next test down the road. What's happening with each successive test? What's happening with each successive work? God is making you a person who is steadfast. Someone who is steadfast. Some of your translations, if you're looking at a different one in front of you, may use the word perseverance, which I, I like that word because that, that brings to mind running. I, I think of endurance running when I think of perseverance. Uh, so if you're, if, you're, if you're maybe just a, a little bit of a runner, maybe, maybe right now, last six months, the furthest you've run is a mile. You know what you probably couldn't do this afternoon? 
you couldn't run 10 miles. If the furthest you've gone in the last six months is a mile, 10 miles, you wouldn't make it today. You'd be a lot of walking. But you know what you could do today? You could probably run a mile and a half. And if you did that two or three times this week or over the next couple weeks, you know what you probably could do in a couple weeks? You probably could run two miles. And it could go from there. You see how that works. When God pushes us, when God tests us, it's so that our steadfastness, our perseverance, our endurance grows more and more. The word here for steadfast is, is the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. How much can you take? How much can you take? God's pushing and growing so that we can take more and more. Now, steadfast, I like, I like the idea of running more just because I like that. It's more fun to me. But probably a better illustration is weightlifting, a weightlifting, maybe even something like squatting. And so he's the idea of what, what can you bear on your shoulders? What can you, what, if, if some weight is put on you, a trial is put on you, what's going to be too much where you would collapse? How much can you take? If you don't take very much, you can't take, if you only take on a little, you'll never take very much. Now my caution here, in using too many metaphors from the physical world, is that faith is not mechanical. It's not like you can do 10 reps, uh, three sets of 10 reps today with God, whatever that means, and next week you can do four sets. You know, it's not mechanical. It's not, it doesn't work like that. Faith is a miracle. Faith is something God does in your heart. He is transforming, and He can produce that as a, at a speed that we couldn't make sense of. Right? Somebody could come to know the Lord today and be willing to sacrifice, like get, lay down their life for the Lord tomorrow. Right? God, God can produce faith and however He so chooses. But generally the way He works is that He grows us in faith, grows us in spiritual maturity. And literally the word here, it says that the, we, the end of this is that we're complete, full, integrity, whole, lacking nothing. So it's, just, it's like He's using all these different ways of saying you're spiritually mature. God's growing you to be more spiritually mature. And we all understand how maturity works with our, with our kids or watching people grow. Like take my kids who are kind of stair-stepped. My two-year-old, she really likes for us to read her books that are pretty short, like you got about five minutes at most, and there's color pictures. Maybe a, a hard book so that when she bites it, it doesn't you know, fall apart. Like that's where she is. My six-year-old's doing pretty good as, as a reader for a six-year-old. He can, he can do 10, 12 pages, a little paragraph on each page. And he's doing great. We're really impressed. At six years old, he's doing great. My eight-year-old, who's finishing second grade, she's reading simple chapter books. Like, we understand how progression grows for us, for, for us physically, in the physical world. But do you understand it spiritually? Do you think about your spiritual maturity? Can, can, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, can you sit down with the Bible, just you and a Bible, and, and hear from the Lord? That takes, it's hard, honestly. It's hard. Even a, a simple book like James, it, it's hard. But if you try, one step at a time, if you're not always relying on somebody else, other resources are good. I love reading books, but, but are, you, are you gleaning from God's Word? Are you gleaning from God's Word? Or to take similarly, a different way, if you, what, what, how, do you, how do you handle when things don't go your way? How do, you, how do you handle things spiritually when things don't go your way? I can tell you how my toddler handles things that, when things don't go her way. She throws a temper tantrum. Are there too many of us that throw temper tantrums to God? Are we spiritually immature when things don't go our way that we just get upset? Or can we be like Job who can say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's spiritual maturity. That's spiritual maturity. Throughout the Bible, we have examples of people who have come enormous, enormous lengths. And we see their faith. And we see that's, that's where we want to be. We want to be spiritually mature people. I'll lift up another example to you, although he doesn't lift himself up, and that's the author of this book, the human author, James. 
We have just enough of his story from the, from the different parts of the New Testament that we can piece together. He's got an incredible testimony. James was a, one of the biological brothers of Jesus, so we call him a half-brother because, you know, Mary and Joseph. Anyway, and so of all the, 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 of Jesus' biological siblings, John 7, 5, for not even his own brothers believed in him. His own brothers did not believe him while Jesus was on the earth. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 gives us a specific reference to James and says, Jesus appeared to James. Only a few people get called out in 1 Corinthians 15, and James is one of them. Jesus made a special appearance to his younger brother, James, and that transformed his life. We read in Acts 15, James is one of the leaders in the church of Jerusalem. So we think he's probably one of the lead pastors of that church. And he has the decisive word in a really crucial moment as they're figuring out how the gospel is going forward. In Galatians 1, when Paul is writing about visiting them, he describes James as he seemed to be a pillar in the church. This is somebody who has grown in spiritual maturity. He is the biological brother of the Son of God. So if you were writing a letter to people, how would you introduce yourself? I am Jesus' brother. You better listen to me. Paul, you know Paul, how great he is. He called me a pillar. How did James describe himself? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In James's mind, in our minds, in our hearts, we got to know this. To be mature is to be willing to lay down our lives. Spiritual maturity for us to follow after. The normal path of Christian life, and it was true for James, is that came not just overnight. It didn't come just at a flash, just by one prayer. It came as God tests and moves and shapes us over time. Maturity, that's what we long for as Christians. That's what we, we long for. We long to know God better. We, know, we long to better reflect His character. We long to be more like Christ. That's what we desire, isn't it? And so often that happens through trials, which brings us back to verse 2. I hope now you have an idea of why this verse is so important. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So here's my, my encouragement to you. Choose joy in trials because they have a purpose. Choose joy in trials because they have a purpose. Listen, if your goal in life, if the highest level of joy that you, you can imagine is what I'll call lazy boy joy, you got your feet propped up and everything's just smooth sailing. Taking a nap. Now it is joy. I look forward to my nap. Like there's a, there's a level there to joy. But if that's as high as it gets for you, you know what the opposite of that kind of joy is? Trials, stress, things that are hard, things that are not going smooth, financial hardship, grief, pain. All those things are the complete opposite, the complete antithesis of lazy boy joy. If the highest form of joy you can think of is just Things smooth sailing, calm waters. That's, that's the highest part of joy you could ever get to. Then trial is the opposite of that. And that's why when we read verse 2, we're like, these are opposites. How can trial and joy be used in the same sentence? It's because our definition of joy is wrong. Our definition of joy is wrong. You know what the Bible's definition of joy is? There's a bunch of them. But Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know where the Bible says the greatest joy is? It's not in your lazy boy. There might be, but the lazy boy doesn't make it joyous. It's in the presence of God. 
If that's the highest form of joy to you, and it is the highest form ever, then trials are an integral part of that more often than not, are they not? Where do you meet God? Where has God showed up in your life? So many of your, your testimony is proof of, chap, of chapter 1, verse 2. That is where I experienced God, you tell me. When I walked through that hardship, when she died, when, when this person got diagnosed, when this bad thing happened, we felt God's presence with us. There's joy. There is joy. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. God is shaping you. He is growing you. He is moving you. And it, it is not fun all the time. It is not easy. It is not light. It is not simple. It's not lazy boy. But it is a greater and deeper joy than could ever be found another way. And just to be clear, we are not talking about facing a hardship and we just keep a smile on all the time and pretend like it's okay. No, that's not joy. That's just fake. And so many times the, the, the church, is the, we, we, we have a bad reputation for just saying, hey, yeah, the Bible talks about joy and trials, so just keep smiling. No, no, no. No, that's not what the Bible is telling you to do. You can admit it. You can be honest. You can walk with your brothers and sisters better when you can say, this is really hard. And I don't know how I'm going to take it. I don't know how I'm going to take it. When you experience fellowship with one another through the trial, when you walk with Jesus through that trial, it's not smiling all the time, but it can be deep, abiding joy. We can help one another, even when things are not okay, to rely on the Lord and experience joy. I quoted from you from 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to James. There's two other guys that get named by name. Other apostles and 500 people get included. But by name, two other people get named. 1 Corinthians 15, 5, he says, He appeared to Cephas, which is Peter's other name. And in verse 8, as is Paul writing, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. So Peter, James, Paul all get specific references at the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. And you know what? We have their writings, and you know, they all write the same thing. I'm going to read you a couple. First Peter, so that's one, Cephas. First Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you mildly celebrate. No, no. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing, tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or take Paul, Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope will not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts, through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. These are people who knew Jesus deeply and personal. They saw the risen Savior. And they said, you know how we experience joy? You know where our deep joy comes from? It comes from going through trials and experiencing God's presence in the middle of it. Not just afterwards, but in the middle of it. Because His presence is right there. He's shaping you. He's molding you. He's making you more like His Son. And he says, there, not in the lazy boy, but there is where you find joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, my sisters, my family, when you face trials of various kinds. Because those trials, they just might be helping you see Jesus better. And there's no greater joy than that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the way that you have given us an opportunity to know you 
truly and deeply. Father, we confess that so often we want shortcuts. We want simple ways to be in your good graces. We, we want to take shortcuts all the time, God. And yet, so often we see in our own testimonies and more importantly in your word, that it's through the tests, through the trials, through the hardships that you show up. So God, may we face our trials not with fear, not with anxiety, not with dread, but with a, a serious joy, knowing that you are with us, that you are in control over all, all things, that you love us, that you care for us, that you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. And so we can rest in you. God, may we celebrate your presence with us. No matter what's going on, good or bad, because in your presence, God, there's fullness of joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.